Oh, morning. Wow, what's the energy level? <laughs> Hope you had a great 4th of July and uh, enjoyed this great country. Um, we have some friends in uh, England and he, uh, he came here to visit and he went to a rodeo in, uh, in uh, Clackamas, Oregon. And uh, that rodeo, you know how rodeos start even over Livingston? Quite a bit of patriotic stuff. He said, I- I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> this. That's very unique to America, the level of patriotism we have about our country. And uh, so it's a good weekend and a good thing to remind ourselves of the country we're part of and uh, to thank the Lord for that. So let's start by just doing that. Would you bow your heads with me? And uh, maybe in your own way, you could just thank the Lord for this country and for what it means and the freedoms we have and the way God has used it to bless so many other parts of the world. Father, we're grateful to you for the privilege of living in this country. We thank you for the freedoms that are ours. We know that to whom much is given, much is required, and we are conscious of all that we have been given, all the opportunity that is ours, all the provision that is ours. So, Father, help us in a way that's not oppressive, but opportunistic. Help us to carry this freedom with uh, great gratitude and to use it to do good to our neighbor, to our community, to our nation, to our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're uh, beginning a series called Big Butts of the Bible. And uh, you'll find in, sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, there are six issues in a row that Jesus deals with where he said, this is the prevailing understanding, but I'm going to tell you something else. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at something, something that people understood to be true and how Jesus challenged that truth. And today we're looking at, at the principle that you've heard it said that uh, you're to love your neighbors and hate your enemies but I say, um, by the way, if, uh, if, if you're not sure yet, I'd really encourage you to go to that uh, river baptism. Uh, I've, I've been to a, a lot of those, and those are a lot of fun. They are a lot of fun. They, they do a lot for you if you're there, and it's just kind of a neat setting. I was smiling while I was listening to uh, Whitney invite us to the river baptism. I remember an old, old joke about a preacher who was really getting fired up, and he said at one point in a sermon, if I had my way, I'd take every whiskey bottle in the United States and I'd throw it at the river, throw it in the river. And uh, the concluding hymn was, shall we gather at the river? So I know, just, uh, you know, when you get to me 65, it just, <laughs> the edge leaves the humor. Well, let's look at what the Lord says to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and on. And this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, I love your neighbor, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Let's look at the second part. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
If you love those who love you, what reward, reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So we're going to look first at living a compelling culture. What Jesus was doing was challenging the fundamental perceptions of the day about what it meant to be religious, what it meant to be a godly person. And uh, in this small snippet of information, he said, there is, a, there is an understanding out there that it's all right to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But he said, that's not true. Now, the Bible doesn't actually ever say that anywhere. So he wasn't actually referring to some biblical comment. In fact, in the Old Testament, just as well as the New Testament, there are strong words about loving everyone. Uh, th this phrase is taken out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it says, love your neighbor, but has no reference at all to hating your enemy. Deuteronomy tells us about loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. So the understanding that it's all right to love your, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy does not come from the Scripture. But as happens in many occasions, meanings start being added. So I grew up in a church where playing pool was considered a sin. Now, how did they get to playing pool was considered a sin? Because by the time I got to be an adult uh, playing pool, I, I knew a lot of people who had pool tables in their house. Well, evidently, many years ago, unsavory characters hung out in pool halls. And so if you were going to be careful about who you befriended, you would, you would avoid the pool hall. Eventually, they took pool out of the pool hall and put it in homes. They just forgot to tell anybody that the law had changed. So pool was still wrong, even if it was in someone's home. Now, however crazy you might think that sounds, that happens all the time in the Christian world. Well, if this is true, then this must be true. And if this is true, then this is true. And by the time human beings who see through a glass darkly have worked it out, we're about six times removed from the truth that the Lord actually told us. So there were rabbinical teachers. There were people who taught the law and even communities in the Old Testament who believe that if it's true that we should love our neighbors, then it must also be true that it's okay to hate your enemies. And they were more insistent on hating your enemies the more distinct they made their own environment. The more other I made myself, the, the, the easier it was to hate you. Because after all, I'm called. I'm chosen. I'm special. And so, then there's the rest. And so I can treat the rest as a threat and as an enemy uh, because of that. So Jesus decided he was going to challenge that. And he, he said to those listening to this sermon, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, what was he doing? He was telling us, I want you to live a compelling culture, 
a culture that speaks out by the very way it functions, speaks out differently than the culture you're being raised in. The culture you're being raised in, if someone does you wrong, you can think of a way to do them wrong. But not in my kingdom. A kingdom is a domain over which there's a king. He said, in my kingdom, that's not how we function. In fact, do you remember when Jesus was being crucified and he was on the cross and the Bible tells us, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not only in that place, while he was being crucified by people, was he asking for their forgiveness. John Stott suggests that the original language suggests that Jesus didn't just say that once. All the while he was hanging there, he was repeating that phrase. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he repeated it and repeated it and repeated it as he hung on the cross as a declaration of his own, the openness of his own heart to the very people who were persecuting him and putting him to death. Living a compelling culture. Now a culture is simply this. It's a social unit, like a church is a social unit, a staff is a social unit, your family is a social unit. It's a social unit that has behaviors and discourse and values that mark it as that unit. Ways you talk and ways you don't talk. No, we don't bring that up. Activities you do. Ah, they don't play games. Behaviors, discourse, values. This really matters. So I started thinking about, uh, this is no way exemplary of how your family should function, but I started writing down some of the positive and negative qualities of my family. Because I thought, all right, my family has a culture. And I want it to be a compelling culture, just like you want your family to be a compelling culture. So if someone comes in contact with your family, they feel refreshed. They feel like they, they, got, they were able to encounter an oasis. It isn't a group bickering with one another or vying for affection. No, this is a family where, well, I'm, I'm sure glad we went over there yesterday. So here's some of the traits, my family. One is they're accepting. I don't come from a family that, uh, that, that makes us and them. In fact, most of my family on my dad's side lives over around Williston, North Dakota. And thousands of oil workers have come in from all over the nation, even the world. And most of my family says, well, most of them are just hard workers trying to take care of their family. Instead of fussing about, well, they're ruining my way of life, they're very accepting. And that, that's actually part of my immediate family. Um, they're patient. My family accepts the limitations of other people. They're funny and fun-loving. When my, when my kids and my wife, and we, when we all get together, all the time we're like reciting lines from movies and that, that our two daughter-in-laws have to figure out. Like Louis Anderson when he says, you're ruining this whole family. Well, the first time you tell your daughter-in-law, <laughs> you're ruining this whole family. You got it. Now, do they mean that, or is that? So then, every Christmas we watch 
Louis Anderson at the Guthrie in Minneapolis, which was a live show that he, he did. They're literate and educated. All Me and my wife, all of our kids, that matters because that affects the kind of discourse we have and how we look at the world. They're curious. All my family, all our kids uh, are curious about things. They look at things with curiosity. They, they tend not to always want to protect the status quo. So if someone came in and they were all about status quo, that wouldn't be very compatible to our family dynamics. They're hardworking. One of the strongest qualities in my family is hardworking. All of our kids have worked from the time they were, they were young. They worked their way through college. They, they had jobs in the summer in college, jobs during college. They were, our whole family works. They're loyal. Now, I don't bring those things up to say that that's any different than your family, but just to illustrate, every social unit has a culture. And Jesus is saying to the hearers of the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like your culture to be compelling. And it is hard to change a culture once it's established. Right now, the staff at Journey Church is working very, very hard to change some of the internal dynamics of the culture of the staff. And it's actually a fun process, but it, it takes work. Because many things that are part of the culture become taken for granted, so you don't even see them when they're happening. So you have to ask for new eyes to see things that you didn't see before. And that is true in your family, and that is true in our Christian life. We're in a church. When I was a superintendent and I oversaw churches, um, I'd go into a church, and they would think they are the friendliest group in the world. I said, how are you about being friendly to the neighbor? Oh, we may have faults, but we're a friendly church. Well, they weren't a friendly church. The only reason they thought they were a friendly church is because the people who went were all their friends. But if you moved in and you weren't, there, if you weren't a friend, it wasn't a friendly place. Nobody greeted you or called you by name when you came in. Nobody showed you where to sit. If you're a stranger, you're, you're constantly worried about embarrassing yourself. And so there was no sense of anticipation. And many of them were not friendly places. Even though they were friendly to those people because they knew their way around. So they just assumed everybody knew their way around. Living a compelling culture. Excuse me if I take a drink. I, I could barely talk yesterday. And I've been on, uh, been on herbal tea all of yesterday so I could talk, which may or may not have con been considered a blessing to my wife, but uh, I can talk more today. So, um, so Jesus was saying, are you living a compelling culture? If you come into journey... Your heart's broken over something. Would you find this a compelling culture? If you got hired to work here, would you find that a compelling culture? If you were chosen to sit on the leadership at Journey, would you look forward to those meetings when they happen? In fact, like I've been on vacation for the last two weeks to a big family reunion on my wife's side. And I can tell you by the end of two weeks, I was looking forward to the next leadership team meeting. Because that's the kind of culture it's become. I, I look forward to seeing the people around that room and talking about whatever we have to talk about because in that setting, I feel both loved, respected, appreciated, 
and uh, also feel that nobody has to hide anything. That's a compelling culture. We all have the capacity to build compelling cultures. Jesus said, you've heard you can love your neighbor and hate your energy, but that's not a compelling culture because we're all going to be on the hate end once in a while. We're going to do something somebody doesn't like, something somebody doesn't approve of. We're actually going to do something that's wrong. And who wants to always run the risk, walking the fine line between when am I going to fall off into the, I did love you, but now I hate you. So living a compelling culture. He said, if you do that, you're reflecting the character of your father. Back again to the compelling culture of an individual family. The heavenly father says, this is my kingdom culture. And when you're functioning this way, when you're loving those who are your enemies and you're loving those who have treated you wrong or are persecuting you, now you're reflecting the culture of my kingdom. And so we aspire to that. Let's look at a second one. This scripture also tells us that we can express a common grace. That's actually a phrase from John Calvin, the theologian, a common grace. The Bible says, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What's the Lord saying there? The Lord's saying that He sends out a common grace that covers all people. Some of you are farmers, and you're good people. I've met a farmer or two that were rascals. But you know, sometimes they get rain and prosper too. What is that? That's like oil in an engine. That's just God being kind. One of the, one of the attributes of a common grace is just showing favor to people. The Lord doesn't just show favor to those who are believers He shows favor to all that are created in His image. And so He sends a common grace across the land, showing favor. He honors honors His way for whoever chooses His way. He doesn't say, now this will work if you're a believer, but if you're not a believer, don't bother because it's not going to work for you. So when the Bible says, a soft answer turneth away wrath, number one, it doesn't mean that if you do that a hundred times, all hundred times, wrath will be turned away. It's not the meaning of that. It means as a general principle of living, a soft answer will turn away wrath. And you know what? If I'm not a believer, that still works. If I use a soft answer, it will turn away wrath many times. I don't have to be a believer. That is God's way, and God honors His way. And He does that for everyone, whether I'm a believer or not a believer. Soft answer turneth away wrath. So God honors His ways. He gives power. He's slow to anger. He's not just slow to anger for His children. He's slow to anger for everybody. That's one of the traits of a common grace. You and I can practice common grace. I'll give you an example. I tried to think of what irritates me. So, like for example, if you work with government bureaucracies. Now if, you're, if, you, if you actually work for them, This isn't a negative thing, because this is, I know what government bureaucracies are meant to do. But I bet a lot of people who work for government bureaucracies just get tired of everybody being mad at them all the time. Because you go in and you want to get a license, you've got to do this and this and this and this. Well, I don't have this document. Well, no, then I can't do it. Well, what do you mean you can't do it? I've got an appointment with the Medicare office. 
Social Security office. Yes, it's come to that. And uh, they'll have their list of things. I worked with an office in, in, uh, in Williston, North Dakota to get my mom on Medicaid. And I tell you, you have got to prove that she has no assets at all other than breathing and the clothes she's wearing. And so we were listing all the assets. And the gal said, because the I grew up on a farm, she says, well, here it says you got a, you got a 1973 Chrysler. Well, she says, yeah, but it was in an accident. It's just, it's just down in the junk pile. And the lady said, well, couldn't you sell some of the parts? <laughs> well, my brother, who's far more temperamental than I, he just blew up at her, which is why I took over that process. Because <laughs> she's got all the power. We got none, you know. And then we, so I would say to her, I'd call her up, i say, now, and you can't have very much money. Like, she can have up to $50 in this one account, and it was very small amounts. And so I called her up and said, now my dad has died. And because a lot of our relatives are living, my mom's going to get a lot of cash and checks. Could you tell me what to do about that? Could you help me? And you know, she went to bat for me because I didn't try to tell her. I tried to pour oil over that and say, would you help me out? And she went to her supervisor and found out. So well, just don't put it in the bank. And you know, she was very gracious. That's common grace. And we can go all over our life and, and, and give common grace. I experienced it this, uh, during this vacation. Our kids from uh, Dallas, Texas flew up. And little Stace is two years old. And of course, just cute as a button. And uh, we pick him up at the airport of Minneapolis. And 25 feet away, my son puts him on the floor and Stace runs to me with his arms wide open. Now, he doesn't know what kind of day I had. He's not even sure of my character. He's just running towards me. Imagine if that's the sense that other people had when they saw you. My life will going to be better today because I bumped into you. Or, oh no. Well, I like them, but boy, they take a lot of energy. <laughs> now, some days, all of us take a lot of energy. But you and I have the capacity to give common grace to people. And it's one of the most attractive things about a person. The willingness to give common grace. Number three, and with this we're done, finding an uncommon love in our hearts. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward or what benefit will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? He said, I'm asking you to do something uncommon. Something that's not part of this world. What is often part of this world? Part of this world is avenging injuries and returning favor for favor. He's, he's saying to me, tax collectors can do that. He picks the most despicable, despicable occupation known to that culture. Tax collectors can do that. 
But I'm asking you to live in love in a way that's superior to the ways of this world so that people can see it. One of my favorite movies is an old movie. <laughs> like the Gaithers, old music movies. <laughs> Gregory Peck, 1983. He made a movie called The Scarlet and the Black. Partially a true story about a Monsignor, Catholic priest in the Vatican, who in World War II helped thousands of Jews and allied prisoners of war escape. The head of the SS in Rome at that time was a General Wolf. General Wolf was constantly trying to trip up this Monsignor, played by Gregory Peck. But he never did it. Now the war is coming to an end, and Wolf comes to the Monsignor and says, I know I'll be in prison, but is there any way you could save my family? What a request. After Wolf has spent all the war trying to catch this priest, and uh, without knowing how or why, even though the Monsignor wouldn't tell him yes to his face, his family made it across the border, something they couldn't have done without help from others. And then, when the general was put in prison, regularly the Monsignor would come to visit him. And it's a historical fact that as part of those visits, that general became a believer in Christ. That's uncommon love. That's a love people will see. That's a love that's compelling. And that's a love that we can't practice without the grace of God. As fallen people in a fallen world, that kind of love is very difficult. But with God's grace, we're able to practice that kind of love in our families of origin, in our church, in our community. So you and I are invited to live a compelling culture. To express daily a common grace. And to find an uncommon love. The very next section says, Therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What he's saying there is a long-known principle. Whatever you concentrate on, you will conform to. You concentrate on your wounds and injuries at the hands of others. That will inexorably lead you to depression and bitterness and anger. The Lord is saying, concentrate on your heavenly Father and His traits of love. So that your life will conform to that. Well, let's set our things aside and bow our heads as we finish. We're just going to wait for a moment and you could commit yourself today. Say, Lord, I'd like to be one of those people that creates a compelling culture in my family and in my life. The kind of person that spreads common grace around to believer and non-believer alike. The kind of person that when someone sees me coming down the street, they think, oh, good. Because they know that I traffic in grace. 
Now, in order to do that, you have to be aware. Aware that, hey, I'm going into this government building and I want to traffic in grace today. I'm going into this meeting and I want to traffic in grace. I have a hard conversation ahead and I want to traffic in grace. And you can create a compelling culture and a common grace and an uncommon love. And if you'd like to do that, you could ask the Lord right now for that kind of grace just to help you. Be that kind of person. We'll wait for a moment as you talk to the Lord. If you're praying a prayer like that, just a quiet prayer of interaction with the Lord, none of us looking around, would you just slip your hand up and say, you know, I, I asked the Lord to help me traffic in common grace today. Yeah, yeah. Many of us, many of us, you bet. Yep, all the way across the, all the way across the building. Lord, we thank you for the kind of people you invite us to be. We aspire to it. Lord, you know how sometimes we despair of how far we fall short. But for all these who slip their hands up, I pray that you will help us. You will send your grace, your power to assist us. in being people of common grace and uncommon love. In Jesus' name, amen.